the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, pink elephants turn out to be insane creatures from Gleis 229 who imagine planet Earth into being while in their cups. Drunks warned not to cross them or will wink out of existence in a poof. E-arcs and summer larks lead to adventure in the stars. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we have a new Bain intern with us today, Jonathan Graubert. You, you've done a few things this week already. You're not just in. Um, how's it been so far and uh, where are you coming from? It's been a little bit terrifying and I am coming from Maryland, uh, St. John's, but a bit further back in origin, I come from Israel. Cool. So you uh, came over here to go to college. You also came before that and lived several years, right? Mm -hmm. I, I spent a few years um, uh, when I was a teenager in uh, Connecticut, actually. And uh, then I went back to Israel, did my three years of the IDF, and I came back to do college here. And you went to St. John's, the uh, the great book school. How was that? Did you like it? I, I, I did. Hurt my brain a lot, um, but I learned, grew as a person. Got an education, which I suppose is what college is about. It's maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you might be getting your education this summer here of a different sort. So, uh, well, welcome aboard, and uh, we'll be hearing more from, from Jonathan uh, on the podcast as well. This time, we have an interview with Steve White and Charles E. Gannon, uh, Chuck Gannon, who discussed their new entry in the Starfire series, Oblivion. Oblivion brings a rousing finale to this portion of the series, with a last stand against alien hordes and lots of courage and tactical brilliance on display. It's a fun book. Plus, there are great character moments therein. We'll talk all about this with Steve and Chuck. And along for the discussion is special guest Tony Weisskopf, who is Bain Publisher and my boss. Plus, we have uh, Jonathan was sitting in on this interview when we did it yesterday to learn the podcast ropes a bit. So, it's a great entertaining interview we have for you coming up. What else do we have coming up, Jonathan? And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leiden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. Excellent. Now, here's the news. The May E-Arcs are here. Now, an e-arc is the sound a rabbit makes when it realizes it's bitten a carrot that is actually an invading alien vampire from the vegan dimension. Fortunately, rabbit bites are inevitably fatal to vegan vampiric invaders, so they haven't become a noticeable nuisance to gardeners yet. No, no, no. That is not what an e-arc is. An e-arc is actually an advanced reading copy in electronic form. These are early versions of our books that are coming out in a few months, and we will sell them to you with the edits in, but the proofreading not done, which can make for a few interesting moments while reading. But generally, what we give you is your favorite author's latest, uh, weeks in advance, sometimes months in advance, usually months in advance. This month we have Avalanche, the new Secret World Chronicle entry by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Gagir. Tell us about that, Jonathan. Well, Ultima Thule has been destroyed. But now the Thulians have mounted an even bigger force to destroy Metis. 
the Metisians have escaped the carnage and destruction of their secret city now must find somewhere safe to go, without being snapped up by the various world governments. You could say things can get worse. You would be wrong. Red Dejini's past is about to catch up with him. So is Victoria Victrix's. The heroes of Echo and, and the heroes of CCCP have to save the world. But first, they have to save each other. And the avalanche has begun. Hey, also out in New York is Worlds 2 by Eric Flint. Hey, this is a great short story collection by a master teller of tales. Known for his New York Times best-selling alternate history novels, Flint is equally a master of shorter forms, and this second large volume that we've put out gathers more of Flint's shorter works, including several stories and a short novel set in Flint's celebrated Ring of Fire alternate history series. In addition to the fiction, Eric Flint has written an overall introduction, plus an introduction for each story, telling how it came to be written making this an irresistible book for the many thousands of Eric Flint fans. That eARC is out. And finally out in eARC is Alternate Routes by Tim Powers. Hey, this is a good one. The ghosts of the L.A. freeway system are rising up. Something weird is happening to the Los Angeles freeways. Phantom cars, lanes from nowhere, and sometimes unmarked off-ramps that give glimpses of a desolate desert highway. Sebastian Vickery, ex-Secret Service agent, is a driver for a covert supernatural evasion car service. This whole concept is really cool in the book. But another government agency is using and perhaps causing the freeway anomalies, and their chief is determined to have Vickery killed because of something he learned years ago at a halted presidential motorcade. Reluctantly aided by Ingrid Castine, a member of that agency, Vickery learns what legendary hell it is that the desert highway leads to. And when Castine deliberately drives into it to save him from capture, he must enter it himself to get her out. Alternate Routes is a fast-paced supernatural adventure story that sweeps from the sun-blinded streets and labyrinthine freeways of Los Angeles to a horrifying other world out of Greek mythology. This is a really good one, and it is out in York right now. Avalanche by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Gaguerre. Worlds 2 by Eric Flint and Alternate Routes by Tim Powers are all available now in York form exclusively at Bain eBooks. Check them out. Want to welcome Steve White and Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi, Tony. We also have along uh, my boss, Tony Weiskopf, today here in the office. Hi, Tony. Hi, podcast listeners. And we have Bain intern, Jonathan Graubard, who is joining us for the summer. He's going to be our summer intern. He'll be helping out on the podcast in various ways, I, I expect, as well. Hi, everyone. Vietnam veteran Steve White is the author of numerous science fiction and fantasy novels, including Wolf Among the Stars, St. Anthony's Fire, Blood of Heroes, and uh, just in the Jason Thanow series, there's a lot that we could say that Steve did, um, and we would be going forever and ever. He's also the co-author of uh, Exodus, the immediate prequel to Extremis, and Oblivion, which we'll be talking about today, with David Weber. Steve collaborated on the Starfire series novels, Insurrection, Crusade, and Death Ground, and the Shiva option as well. So uh, he's been along on all the Starfire series. Charles E. Gannon is the author of Compton Crook award-winning Nebula-nominated Fire with Fire, Trial by Fire, Raising Cain, and Cain's uh, Mutiny in the Cain Reordan series. He is the co-author with Eric Flint of 
1636, the Papal Stakes and Commander Cantrell in the West Indies in Eric Flint's best-selling Ring of Fire series. Do we we have a Papal Stakes uh, sequel out, right? Yes, which is the Vatican sanctions. The Vatican sanctions, yes, that slipped my mind momentarily. Um, with Steve White, Chuck is the co-author of the Starfire series novels *Extremist* and *Imperative*, and the author of multiple short stories. Member of Sigma, the SF think tank, which has advised various intelligence and defense agencies since the start of the millennium. This millennium. Chuck lives near Annapolis, Maryland, with his wife and children. Um, Steve Steve lives in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, so uh, everybody's a uh, somewhere in the in the like the mid Atlantic region. There, we are tide water creatures. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> yes. Well, and uh, Jonathan, our intern, just got done with four years at St. John's in Annapolis, right, Jonathan? Yes, sir. Uh, four years in in in, in the bubble. <laughs> now we're teaching him all sorts of strange things that are that are alarming to him, but <laughs> but that's life. Um, well, out now at booksellers everywhere is Oblivion, which is a Starfire novel by Steve White and Charles E. Gannon. It's part of this uh, great ongoing. Uh, it's like twenty five years old now. I think uh, New York Times best selling series. Good stuff. Um, so. Uh, Tell us where we are in the series. What's the situation at the start of Oblivion so we can uh, maybe get our discussion set up? Well, the stage was set for Oblivion in Imperative, which is part of this uh, story arc within the Starfire universe that started with Exodus and Extremis. And just as a convenience label, I'm going to call all this the Exodus story arc. And... To sum it up as briefly as possible, what happens in this story arc is that you have an alien race, the Arduans, who are fleeing from a supernova that's going to make their home planet uninhabitable. And what they're fleeing in are <clears throat> humongous, slower-than-light generation ships. Now, uh, this comes as a shock to the humans and uh, other associated races once the Arduans enter their space because the humans and their friends and other associates have always traveled between the stars using warp points, which allow instantaneous transit from one point to another. And nobody has ever even tried to go STL. So this, of course, completely obviates the whole strategic picture based on the warp point network. It's as if the entire sky has turned into one vast warp point. You just don't know where the bad guys are going to be coming from. Now, what happens in Exodus and Extremis is that the first wave of these generation ships uh, fight a war with the uh, humans and uh, uh, their allies, which is eventually resolved. And this uh, first wave of Arduin immigrants has settled in uh, more or less amicably. <clears throat> However, unbeknownst to everybody, they're following behind this first wave are other diasporas of uh, Arduans, and these have been taken over by a faction, which for reasons we'll go into later, considered the first group that has reached an accommodation with the humans, regards them as traitors and heretics who are fit for extermination along with the humans. 
and uh, this uh, this no attitude on their part. No contemporary resonances there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, and, and this um, <clears throat> just a bit. And uh, this attitude on their part is not to be taken lightly because number one, they've broken up some of their generation ships into kinetic projectiles, which um, swept through human space at relativistic velocities, smashing into planets, uh, which, of course, doesn't do the planet or its inhabitants a bit of good. They also have, uh, in addition to all the devastation wreaked by this, they also have a new weapon, the uh, relativistic acceleration weapon, or RAW, which, using the principles of quantum entanglement, can um, materialize particles within a target with 100% uh, conversion into energy inside the target, which, of course, ruins your whole day. So uh, well, this has uh, obviated or, or caused um, the, old, the super dreadnoughts, the big ships that humans have developed to be essentially useless now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. You see, the uh, uh, now, now you're, uh, I have to correct your terminology here. The super dreadnought, what it, what it is, uh, originally in the Starfire universe, <clears throat> which is, as you know, is based on a game system, the Super Dreadnought was the biggest warship. Now, uh, it has been found over the course of the development of the Starfire universe uh, that uh, in space warfare, size matters. And as a, and as a, so... Um, <clears throat> Larger warships have been developed over the course of all these novels. Uh, it sort of um, goes back to the old showbiz adage: if you're going to have a circus, you got to have elephants. And so, naturally, for subsequent circuses, you got to have bigger elephants. And so, uh, in the course of uh, my novels with Dave Weber, they developed something called the Monitor, which was bigger than the Super Dreadnought, and then the Super Monitor, and then in Exodus and Extremis, they developed the Devastator, which was bigger still, and finally the Super Devastator, which was uh, widely <clears throat> believed to be invincible. Because and, everything uh, you order um, can be supersized. Just yeah, 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 yeah. The Super Devastator was regarded as invincible. Now, uh, I'm sure I'm not really giving anything away when I say that in the words of Mammy Yoakum, it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> yeah, I mean you can see why why this series is so much fun. It's it's got uh, it's it, it's got all the fun of military science fiction, all the the scope of great space opera, um, mm -hmm. and. And, and, and the sly humor of Steve and Chuck. Uh, so. right. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm afraid that no, uh, I'm not going to name names, but I'm afraid all too much military science fiction seems to consist of one grubby little infantry squad stuck in the jungle on planet Vietnam. <laughs> although, although some of the stuff I've read more recently, uh, I thought I'd give it another try, so I read something more recent, and sure enough, we had one grubby little infantry squad stuck in the desert on planet Afghanistan. And uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with stories like this, of course. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's anything there is. Uh, I just think it's unnecessarily self-limiting because the great thing about science fiction is that you can really deal with high concepts and vast scope and just about anything you want to do. Well, the other thing from the Starfire universe, of course, is the alien races um, and the fun you guys have with dealing with not just first contact, but many different contacts. Yes. Uh, yes. The, 
<clears throat> now, I, I am the first to admit that it is somewhat implausible that you would have a situation like we have in the Starfire series in which over and over again our heroes encounter a new alien race which is more or less at exactly the same technological level it is at. This is, uh, uh, I admit this is a low probability event, but you got to do it if you want to have a war rather than merely an annexation. Well, I mean, that's, again, we're, we're getting to, you guys are playing with uh, essentially real-world rules. Um, you, you are trying to keep to as hard science as, as you possibly can. As, as we could possibly can, given the fact that, as you know, this was based on a, <clears throat> a game system, the Starfire game system, which originally came out in the year 1979. And Dave Weber and I were were both um, Starfire players, and this is how we eventually met and uh, and started writing fiction together. But we were we had to work within the uh, the constraints of the Starfire game system, which made it rather challenging. Actually, it uh, it, it sort of reined us in. It, it kept us honest in a way because we had to stay within these parameters. And some of these parameters were, well, they involved things that made Starfire eminently playable, but... Uh, Not eminently us, plausible. But, but required, but required I mean, us to give up certain laws of physics. Yeah, but, but you guys have... You do have your alien species and the humans have relative disadvantages that they that they use initiative and um, a lot of thoughtfulness and a lot of cleverness to overcome. So it's not, it's not exactly like they're, they're perfect equals. Um, in fact, no, no, the, no, the fun not. of the books is how you have, have them think through these problems, especially the, um, the, right. the technological issues that, the, that they encounter. It enables to set up some genuine tactical problems, some gen <clears throat> and, uh, and some genuine um, <clears throat> R&D strategies that the, um, <clears throat> that the protagonist races have to go through. For example, you already dealt with one example of that, the, the, the fact that the, uh, the super devastator becomes obsolete because of the the Kaituni uh, raw, the real relativistic acceleration weapon, because the thing of it is, this can only, is totally devastating, um, materializing things within the target, but uh, the targeting is such that it can only be used against the big ships. So the big ships big all of a sudden become, become big and slow. They suddenly, yes. And they, uh, so the big slow ships uh, become death traps. And uh, which is unfortunate for our heroes because the big slow ships are armed with <clears throat> something called the gravitic disruptor or G beam, which is a nasty weapon, but it's only it can be used at its maximum effectiveness with the, by a ship with a really big, powerful engine. Well, uh, maybe we should. Uh, all right, so we've got sort of the scope. Um, maybe we could talk about the characters a little because they are they are. I think that you both handle different main characters. There's two basic plot lines, storylines in here. Um, 
the first of these is Ian Trevain, and the other one is Ossian Weathermere. Um, can we talk a little bit about Ian first? Uh, who is he? Who was he? Because this guy's been around. Um, he's got a family at stake now, too. All kind of things, um, and and he's 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 a quite a character. Well, okay. 80 years before the Exodus uh, story arc begins, we had the <clears throat> Fringe Revolution, which broke up the old Terran Federation into the Terran Republic and uh, the human component of what is rather exaggeratedly called the Pan-Sentient Union. Now, uh, in this war, uh, Trevain who was in his 40s at the time, was the big hero of the war on the loyalist side. Uh, eventually, he, in a battle with his arch enemy, Li Han, who was the big hero on the rebel side, he is <clears throat> not quite killed, but the only way they keep him alive is by a quick and dirty cryogenic freeze from which he cannot be brought out without killing him. So for 80, he spends 80 years getting, as he himself puts it, well and truly freezer burned, at the end of which time they finally come up with a technique by which they can produce an anencephalic clone of him and transfer his brain into that. So there's a, uh, so he achieves a kind of resurrection. And this happens, so all of a sudden his, uh, his, Good old brain is inside this uh, 20-year-old body. Now, uh, as it happens, this uh, occurs at about That's the same time. That's what we do in the interns around here when they're up. done, by the way. <laughs> oh, oh, really? We just scoop them out and put our... Watch your sex, John. But anyway... Yeah, so he... Uh, uh, so Trevain uh, comes back in time to uh, <clears throat> to lead against the Arduins in the course of Exodus and Extremis. And in the course of this, so now of course there there is um, oh, this involves a certain adjustment on his part. For example, his old lover is now uh, uh, about 150 years old and has uh, numerous grown children. And uh, his old arch enemy, Li Han, is still around, and he ends up falling in love with Li Han's daughter and eventually marries her. She goes missing in the last book. In, uh... Yeah, yes, uh, yes. In, in, in imperative. Uh, but it is true. And he, uh, aside from being a legendary figure from the fringe revolution, the there's a kind of mythic resonance involved in the fact that he comes back to life uh, just in time, uh, just so when the Arduins arrive, sort of like King Arthur uh, coming back when England needs him. And uh, uh, the, between the, all of that, and plus the fact that he's a tactical genius, uh, they really need him, but he's uh, all too willing to risk his own life. And uh, I don't want to go into all the details, but basically his wife, uh, Lee Magda, so sort of a benign mutiny by which she uh, essentially takes the bullet for him, but but it's not certain that she's dead. And they have a, a six-year-old daughter um, with a wonderful name, Han. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as somebody remarks in the story, um, it's Han Trevain. This is a. As somebody in the story remarks, this is sort of like a kid named Hatfield McCoy. But 
And but anyway, there the the problem with Han is uh, at the time of uh, oblivion, she's been brought to Earth, which was uh, believed to be a safer location for her. Which turns out to be not the case at all. In fact, she's right in the crosshairs, and this, of course, is another complication for Trevian. Some of the um, my funnest parts of the book are when Trevain gives these speeches to the uh, he he sort of like ship shipwide uh, announcements, um, and uh, he I felt roused by them. I want to go out and fight with this guy. <laughs> um, is it fun to write those speeches? Is this a is this a Steve or a Chuck uh, part, or do you both do these together? Trevain no, is all I, Steve. As a matter of fact, we have you can talk about almost any character. And it's it's pretty much one. It belongs to one or the other of us. No, that's right. That's the way keeps things tidy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, well. When Dave Weber and I were writing the original uh, novels of this series, I was running Trevane and he was running Lee Han, and so the, 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 the this got tense. But you um, were in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, the, <clears throat> but uh, as for speeches, uh, yeah, I did try to make him wax Churchillian at the beginning of uh, of Oblivion. Uh, I um, I did this for two reasons. First of all, I wanted the, the I wanted to some convey as best I could the the fact that he's a very charismatic figure. And as I say, there's this mythic resonance about him at this particular stage in his life or lives. And uh, also, I wanted to use his speech to bring the reader up to date on the background uh, in a relatively painless way. Basically, he reviews the situation. And uh, finally, I wanted to use this rather Churchillian speech to underline the sheer desperation of the situation at the beginning of Oblivion. I mean, the human race has its back to the wall. Several points in the narrative where he he rallies the troop like troops like that, and it's really effective. And it's always a moment of uh, uh, of mistiness for those of us who who like such things. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about Ossian now and bring in and Chuck some more. Um, who came up with him? And um, tell us a little bit more about him. So Ossian was um, the 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 story of how uh, Steve and I came to work together, um, or rather, I should say, conceived of it uh, before we got uh, greenlit uh, by by Tony in that very room. Um, is that for a period of time, uh, Steve was. Uh, shall we say, uh, he, he was uncertain how the, the, um, the original start on Extremis was with a different collaborator, and it was uncertain how that was going to, how that was going to work out. So ultimately, it, it happily fell to me. It was the first novel I ever wrote. Um, it was, uh, it was a, a, a grand experience. I couldn't ask for a better collaborator who has become, become a person about whom I can say I couldn't ask for a better friend. And uh, and that happened very quickly because you see, before we ever wrote together, we drank bourbon together. <laughs> this is a, yes, the, this the, is a wonderful the two are entirely unrelated. So um, and um, so at any rate, this completely unnecessary foundation for what came next uh, was nonetheless in place. And when when we took a look at what was there, 
um, it was it was pretty clear that that Steve had already written a number of chapters which were which were perfect because this again this was a this was a novel that was going to take place essentially in two or more theaters of action and up till that point uh, Steve's Steve's focus had been on one or two of those locations which were conveniently located fairly far away from the the ones that I was going to wind up picking up. So I sat down and I said, what sort of character do I want to write? And it struck me that we had we had one of the things that the the series had in 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 great in as great riches were professional military people, people who had who had either whether they were professional through the enlisted or professional through the officer ranks. That was um, a constant, a, a sort of a constant in the series. And I sat there and I said, you know, there are people because I had a, a son at this time who's, who was making murmurings about ROTC. So I, I I sort of sat there and I thought, I wonder about the people who come into this through a less direct manner. That that maybe they're going to school and they they you know they do the equivalent of NOTC. No, there will be no jokes about Nazi as a result of that. Um, but. Uh, because um, ROTC, of course, is ROTC, so you can imagine what the naval people have to deal with. Um, and so I said, what about somebody who comes up through that, through that, if you will, line? And the story of the story of um, of Ossian Weathermere, to some degree, is a little bit. Um, I would say, if you want to mix a kind of, if you want to mix Hornblower's kind of freewheeling and rapid rise with MacGyver. Um, you you have a little <laughs> bit of a sense of who Miles Ossian is, because his approach to situations tends to be, I think I think the word modestly, the term modestly unconventional is safely an understatement, um, and that is yeah. that is very much how he evolves over the course of the series, and he doesn't lose that, and some of that I figure is because um, there, there are one of the things we see is is that he has certain not coming from that professional military background sometimes means he has a lot of catching up to do. And, and that means he and other people pay that price. On the other hand, one of the things you get out of it in the sense that we have the defects of our virtues and the virtues of our defects is that he's able to sort of look at a problem and he doesn't necessarily, he, he doesn't have, if you will, the, the, um, the, the preferred and received solution that was learned and drilled into his head, playing in the back of his head the whole time. He kind of comes to things with a with a sort of fresh view from a you know from a different perspective sometimes, which was a lot of fun to play with. It also gave me an opportunity to do to chip away at something that 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 Steve and I had many discussions about over time, which was the fact, as, as Steve referred to earlier, that it came from a game, a game which in its initial Incarnation, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, had as one of its most powerful propulsive technologies ion drives. Yes, well, uh, yes, uh, the, the ion drive, which you which yeah. is, you sort of moved along at a at a given speed, and it could just stop, and it could, uh, uh, yeah. and it could uh, almost immediately uh, reverse direction and so forth. This is what I meant earlier yeah. about giving up certain laws right. of physics. So, so there were some things that were let go. There were other things that seemed like we had an opportunity to maybe, to maybe, without retconning, show them in detail to explain how they work. One of them was that the series up to this point 
had been filled with people in 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 space fighters who were experiencing all the sorts of G-force effects that, for instance, you do in an atmosphere. Well, you pretty much don't, particularly if you're in a non-pressurized cockpit and if you're in a vac suit that's completely sealed. You're not going to have any air effect on you. You're not going to feel those exactly those same sort of forces. So we found a way to, in fact, portray that. And these sort of things went along over time. We got a little more defined on, on some of the physics behind the weapon systems. And Ossian, because Ossian kept, was the guy who kept on saying, yeah, but what about this? Because he didn't know any better not to say that. And people look at each other and go, yeah, what about that? Maybe we can do something with that. And this was an opportunity to sort of get in there and fiddle with a couple of the bits under the hood. So he was doing double duty, really. I, I really like being able being able to see um, the, the what happens when you change the tactical situation for these uh, for these armies when when you when you attack their assumptions. Uh, now, of course, you're the authors and you can just do that. Um, but it's nice to see how this is handled on an institutional level um, and the different ways it can be handled with the different the, the different species and the different um, organizational structures that you have in this universe. Yes. Yes. Uh, no, let me go back and interject one thing here. Uh, as Ashen is to the uh, Turin military, uh, Chuck has been to the Starfire universe. I cannot compliment him enough for the fresh insights and novel viewpoint he has brought to bear on our good old hoary assumptions. Um, Ashen is sort of. Um... He reminds me of another certain character I know named Kane Reardon. Um, there's a lot of the same sort of uh, jack-of-all-trades, um, somebody that operates uh, between insanity and, um, and uh, genius. Right, Chuck, I would say? Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's certainly some, some, some threads there. Absolutely. Um, the, the difference, of course, is that Kane starts out completely... Without, I mean, his military background is as an analyst. You know, he's he's done some the equivalent of interviews in the field and things like that. Um, so so Ossian comes far more prepared than he does, and also therefore a slightly more more limited cone. But yes, absolutely, he's um, he uh, Ossian because he's probably a jack of all trades. Also winds up sort of being a liaison in a lot of ways to the Arduins, um, which is which becomes a really important thing. And to go to what to go to what Tony was just saying about shaking up the paradigms, if you will, of, of military in general, military science fiction is, is, as related inside the Starfire series, perhaps more broadly. Um, that, having that human connection to the Arduins was really interesting because the Arduins represent one of the major um, introductions of asymmetry into, into the, 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 if you will, the warfighting paradigm in the Starfire universe there, because one of the things I remember we were sitting down, one time, this was early on when I was talking with, with Steve and I said, so Steve is, is, um, is Selnarm. And I know we're going there eventually is Selnarm limited by light speed. And Steve looked at me and he said, I don't know. I don't think it would be. And I said, that's really cool. And that's an extraordinary opportunity because their command and control requirements become entirely different than humans who are still limited to speed of light, to speed of light communication. 
And this creates this situation where, and also their 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 lack of fear of death, which puts quite frankly, you know, kamikazes yes. look like look like you know scared kindergarten kids compared to these. The 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 yes. The Arduans believe that they believe in re, yes, in reincarnation, right? Right. Yeah. What it is? Uh, I came up with the Arduan race. A long time ago, back in the 1990s, uh, just as uh, an idea for something that Dave Weber and I might eventually work on. And uh, my, one of the things about the Arduans that I wanted to emphasize was the fact that culture, there's a fundamental cultural difference between them and us, and that is that uh, on their road to high technology, they never experienced our so-called conflict of science and religion because their science right. – Proved their religion to their satisfaction. They so they believe, believe in reincarnation with a single-mindedness, which is impossible for us to believe in anything. And uh, that so they are completely fearless, and a good a good part of their culture is based on. Uh, I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember the arguing word for it, but basically the recollection of past lives. And. Uh, this uh, is part of the conflict between the good guy Arduans, or relatively good guy Arduans, the ones who are the first uh, diaspora, versus the ones coming after them, who, are, who have, to a great extent, rejected this, or, or rejected reliance on it. Yeah, they they're shaken uh, in many ways, and they're just they're like a, a beehive that somebody hit with a stick, which was that you're not going to live forever. <laughs> so, so what is, uh, if we can, the the initial uh, situation is is that these the second wave of Arduans is pushing this hor horrific arachnid species toward Earth. We think, at least, um, and and they're going to come out at the Alpha Centauri warp point, um, or um, and and that's where Trevane is, uh, and and. Tell us where Trevane and Ossian are at the beginning of the books, and what what situations they're in. If you, you know, tactically. Well, well, Trevane at the beginning of the book is on this warp chain leading to Alpha Centauri. What it is, you have to. In the Starfire universe, it is assumed that our solar system is what is called a cul-de-sac system. In other words, it only has one warp point. However, that one warp point leads to another warp point at Alpha Centauri, and Alpha Centauri has eight of the suckers. So Alpha Centauri becomes the, the human race's gateway to the galaxy. So the thing is, when as Trevane is being forced back toward Alpha Centauri, and once he gets there, then the human race's uh, back is really to the wall, because there's nowhere, there's nowhere it can go from Seoul. The, okay. Now, now the now the the tactical situation in Alpha Centauri that Trevane faces is that the the Arduans driving the Arachnids before them are going to be coming through a warp point at one side of the Alpha Centauri system, and the warp point leading to Seoul is on the other side, and they're going to be passing a bunch of other warp points. So Terrain comes up with the idea of using these other warp points as bolt holes. In other words, he sends task groups through these warp points to whatever stars they lead to, 
and they just wait there. And they can appear as the Arduins. Well, I, I keep saying Arduins. I should say the Kaituni, which is what the bad guy Arduins call themselves, uh, come through there. They can be attacked on the flanks by forces appearing out of these warp points because you see it's very paradoxical to go to another it's easier using the warp network to go to another star than it is to slog across a single solar system but uh, but that that's sort of the tactical situation in Alpha Centauri that uh, Trevane faces and, and where is Weathermere at this time? And so Weathermere has, in the in the prior novel Imperative, has found uh, there was no. He, they were essentially um, in a in an entirely different salient, and uh, they were essentially uh, uh, peripheral to the complete destruction of the Orions uh, as a as a force and being, pretty much. That's one of the other alien races, the Orions. Felid, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they are passed off as Felid, although, of course, they have probably have about as much genetically in common with, a, with a, a terrestrial cat as a cat does with a lobster. Actually, probably a whole lot less. A whole lot less. But, uh, yeah. But in, it, so what we had in the, last, in the last novel was they realized that they had a way to bring the fleet that was stuck all the way back where in, in the uh, – at in the primary uh, zone of, of activity of Extremis and bring it forward. And that's where Yoshikuni's fleet comes in and, and all that. And this is, uh, this is very much basically what Weathermere has to do and has been doing is to go on the down low. He has to stay undetected. If he engages the enemy, there can be, there can be no report of it. There, it has to be completely clean and eliminated every time. So he's working through what used to be called the Star Union area. And they are now starting to get, they have at the end, they, at, they start this novel, Oblivion, realizing what is happening to, to Trevane. That, that Earth is getting beaten up, the, if you will, the corridor that leads from, from all the, like B-15, etc., all the way on up to Alpha Centauri, which of course is going to put, it on the, put them on the doorstep of Earth itself, the Sol system. So um, Weathermere is, in a general sense, behind the assault and and Trevane is going to take the brunt of it while uh, while Weathermere sort of attacks in the rear or at least comes up with a plan for how to deal with the Katuni back there. Is that a correct assessment? That that is, and there's and much of the tension on on the, the during the passage out of the Star Union is that Yoshikuni wants to go on the attack. And we have to we have to get in the game now and we have to save them and this, that and the other thing. But Weathermere's looking at this and says they always keep their their raws, their relativistic uh, you know, assault, uh, attack weapons back. Well, if we get in behind them and if they send the, – he's thinking if they send their, their – essentially their nutcracker into the Sol system from Alpha Centauri, there's going to be a space of time where they have left the RAWs behind them thinking they're essentially safe with the equivalent of a garrison force. And if we can whack them pretty much, if we can take them out, then there's one, then one thing changes in the Sol system. The devastators and the super devastators become the all important weapons once again, because the, the, the giant killers, the Davids in this story have suddenly been eliminated. And there's a great deal of tension because it is, it is a it is a very very it's a it's a situation that 
that um, that Weathermere is is loath is is loath to be the advocate for because he knows what it means. Every one of those planets, every day that 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 uh, Trevane's fleet is having to to essentially hold the hold the many passes of Thermopylae on the way to Earth is is hundreds, thousands, millions of lives lost. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I love the idea of uh, Alpha Centauri being thermop- the, the Thermopylae Pass. Yeah, I was going to ask, are, are there other uh, real-world um, analogies and historical uh, precedents you guys were thinking about, World War II or, or uh, uh, South China Sea tactical situations? What, what were you thinking? Well, when you say Arduins and Kaituni, that's uh, sort of the equivalent of saying Germans and Nazis, and yeah. the and uh, I actually went as far uh, dealing with the Kaituni as to use individual parallels. I mean, the, their head honcho is is more like Hitler and everything uh, but that little mustache. I'm telling you, <laughs> and uh, one of his chief subordinates is more like Himmler. In other words, the subordinate is the real ideologue. The uh, the the head honcho uh, is uh, more into power than into ideology. Chuck, it, Chuck, were you thinking about um, uh, military uh, military history at all when you were doing this, or you know, it's it's probably not on the way in. Uh, because the because the dynamics of the technology and the and space are different enough that that I'm I'm really thinking more about in order to write something that feels to me like hard science fiction I sort of want to immerse myself in that world but as I as I went through it the yeah. parallels come up and I think the parallels come up in the spirit of it which yes, is right, yes, you know yes. a, a, a lot of it is to me a lot of the kind of of ideas. That were well, the relationship, if you will, between the Allies in the West and the Russians in World War II. Yeah. The Russians yeah. mm-hmm. kept on saying, "Relieve us, relieve us, open the other front, open the other front." And you've got now Yoshikuni is a, a little bit like, and was probably about the same success. Montgomery, yes, we're going to get there. We're going to get right in there. We're going to fight. And there were other or Patton. Well, they well the 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 if you will the 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 longer game was. We know they're taking hits, but the bottom line is there will be the best moments, and we have to be sure we take the best moment because we can wrap this up much more definitively if we wait for it. So there was that tension. There were a lot of the sacrifices on the, on the Eastern Front that came to mind. Some of those, some of those battles uh, on, on the ocean, like in the Coral Sea, uh, turning back, uh, blunting the Japanese advances on on Australia, the, the incredible sacrifices, destroyers running at battleships. I mean, this sort of thing was very much in my mind, along with the guilt of people who were not in the teeth of it, yeah, but who, yeah. who felt that pull that I should be in the teeth of this. Well, that's great. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, tell us a tell us a little bit about. Um, since we've mentioned it, and it's a, this is what ASEAN uh, Weathermere's kind of uh, got up his sleeve. Tell us uh, something to do with this. Tell us a little bit about Cell Norm and how it affects all of this. Boy, uh, without giving anything away, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's put it like this: the best equivalent I can can give. In a, in, not in a sort of phys, a sense of physics. I mean, the bottom line is, as we've already said, mm-hmm. cell alarm, it travels faster 
than than and it's immediate. It is, it's instantaneous, and it can actually. Go, reach over. Usually, it is it is mostly constrained to operation inside of a, a given heliosphere, a given a given system. But there are ways, and this is one of the things that allows the Kaituni to actually de- dominate all almost all of the incoming later waves of the Arduins and turn them into Kaituni because they figure out something very simple, which is okay. I can't get a specific message or emotion through, but I can do this. I can yeah. turn it on, I can turn it off. And that is the basis of binary yeah. yes. or Morse, yes. as the case may go. Yes, Sonar now, isn't exactly telepathy, as that is usually understood. It's an empathic sense. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah. is it, how is it different than the Force? Uh, the, 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 uh, in well, the interest well, of brevity, was, let's ask, how is it similar to the Force? It seems somewhat similar to the Force. Well, I'm going to say Selnarm has rules. How about that? Yeah. Well, that's true. It's not magic. <laughs> there you go. See, see uh, what I love about Tony is she is tactful yet blunt. Uh... <laughs> and those rules have a huge part to play in the in the working out of the story as well. So. Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, Selnarm, or leveraging Selnarm against itself, turns out to be one of the tricks that, if you will, the 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 Werner von Braun equivalent, the you know the 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 Arduin scientists who are the equivalent of the Selnarm the Selnarm populators of this version this world's version of Project Paperclip, actually figure out a way to essentially um, use Selnarm because their adversaries have decided, hey, guess what? If we we can pilot, we don't need to waste pilots. We put individual we we run. We run fighters, essentially, from drone command centers. So we can lose any number of machines, and they can't do anything to us. We always have an intact group of experienced fighters. And one of, one of the things, without giving it away, is that, that Atien's, like I said, his Arduin brain trust figures out a way to, well, let's put it like this. It's a real bitch when they hack your drone. Uh-huh. <laughs> just believe it at that. Mm. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's not let's not give any more away than that. Uh well let's step back for a moment. Uh what what are you uh what are you both working on right now? And And you could go ahead and pitch to Tony now that <laughs> No, please don't. <laughs> well what I've mostly been working on lately is uh, a universe I'm dreamed up with for my upcoming novel, Her Majesty's American. Uh, I also have a uh, short story set in that universe in the Bane anthology, Star Destroyers, which is now in the bookstores. And I have another short story uh, in that universe, which is coming out on Bane.com in July. Basically, this uh, all this takes place in the 23rd century of an alternate timeline in which the American Revolution was patched up. And as a result, uh, by the 23rd century, we have an interstellar British Empire. However, it's a, it has a, rivals, however, and disgruntled elements. And, and this is mostly what I've been working on right now. I hope to do a, uh, a sequel to Her Majesty's American. Her Majesty's American, I believe, is a September book, and uh, it's really cool. It's got a super cool cover. Yeah. By um. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, so that is cool. the British guy. Oh, oh, uh, Dominic Harmon. Dominic yeah. Harmon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we had a Brit do your Her Majesty's American cover. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Chuck, what's going on in in the Ganiverse? <laughs> that that sounds as bad as it seems. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, the well, the the thing that's going on right now, to the exclusion of all else, and the only reason that I had any misgivings to hop on the phone today was because I'm concluding the revisions to Mark of Cain, which is the fifth book in the Cain Reorden series, in which I think the, uh, the, the easiest way to put it is this is sort of um, like uh, the, the, the tales of Marco Polo meets Satyricon um, in space. And uh, at the end of it, the, the series has pretty much stood on its head 180 degrees. Um, and I, I, I'm having a blast writing and revising this book. Um, and it's, uh, you know, every once in a while you write a book and you say, how am I going to work this out? And it's not this, this is this one. Had there not been other things in my way, this one was very, very easy. And the stuff leading, you know, in many ways, all four books. And I think a lot of people will, will hopefully see this. I think the people who've read the series, uh, many things which have been, so to speak, left on the table. Not as bad as, as the gun over the fireplace and had a gobbler, but, but, um, but, or is that a pistol? I can't remember. Um, but at any rate, uh, there are a bunch of, of, if you will, unanswered, not pressing questions, but, well, how would that have happened? Why is this? In a hard science fiction universe, for instance, just to take one example, why do you have to... to Harken back to something earlier in this conversation. How is it that you have five different intelligent species all in a 150 light year diameter who, within about 7,000 years of each other, all come to uh, faster than light travel at the same time? Now, if you know, and, and you start, you start now, given that this is. Let's put it like this. This, science, this is as hard science fiction as I know how to write and allow travel between stars that is not mm-hmm. faster than the speed of light, but gets around the speed of light. Because if Mother Nature can do that with quantum entanglement, damn it, Chuck Gannon can too. <laughs> it's, only, it's only fair. <laughs> so, yeah, right? You know, um, so, so the thing is that all of those sort of questions, which quite frankly... I've tried to maintain a trip hammer pace in the series, which means you, that, that like the characters, I think a lot of readers have said, well, that is kind of unusual, but what the hell? You know, that's not where the action is right now. Well, all of, it is, all of this has been accumulating and building up to something, as they say, and a lot of this, let's put it like this, many, many, many questions get answered in the course of Mark Cain. However, and anybody who's read one of these books knows, as many more get spawned by those answers. So this is, if you can, if I sound enthusiastic, yeah, you know, I'm just not that good an actor. I really am. Um, it sounds like you've run out of ideas and you're struggling to make it 50,000 words. <laughs> no. Right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yes, it really is. Yeah. It uh, sounds great. Uh, and what's the title again? The, the, the title is Mark of Cain, where Mark is spelled M-A-R-Q-U-E. Um, very, very quickly running over some other things. Uh, I don't know, um, Tony, there's something, there's a, there's a contract, I believe, heading towards me about my participation in another universe. Is this a good place to announce it, or do I leave that on the down low? Uh, I, 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 I think, 
you know how superstitious I am too. Let let's leave it for the next uh, the the next episode. But there we go. So so now there's now yeah I really have to tune in again to the podcast. See? Uh, so there's 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 a secret spelled S E K R I T project that you'll hear more about later. Um, I'm finishing up a um, another 1632 novel there where I'm sort of playing the role of Eric Flint to to um, Robert Waters, and that's called Calabar, 1637 Calabar's War. Uh, then um, I spin around and do yet another 1632 thing, the, um, the sequel to uh, um, uh, Commander Cantrell in the West Indies, which is uh, the uh, war beyond, uh, no war beyond the um, uh, War Beyond the Line, and uh, that is uh, that's going to be hopefully done since I've already got thirty thousand in the can sometime by fall latest, and then I do the first book in the uh, fantasy trilogy called The Broken World, uh, oh, and uh, and that one is I'm really looking forward to writing that one as well. And uh, all all I can say is if you see things in that novel which look like I am leaning on what I would call the tired tropes of, quote, medieval tinctured fantasy. I'm not. They're there for a reason. And you know I'm going to play a game. So I hope everybody comes along and plays the game with me. So that's sort of my, my that's, the short, that's the short horizon outlook right now. Sounds cool. Um, as far as the Starfire series goes, this book is just uh, a wonderful culminating sort of uh, climactic moment for the storyline. It's it's just got all kinds of wonderful, cool action and character moments. It may be it's it may series, be that the uh, last chapter. If I could just say this, because I have to pat my pal on the back here, um, I think, and I love so much of what Steve has done over the course of this series, but I think his last chapter in this book is arguably my very favorite. And for those of you, don't skip to the end. Just just get to it in its, in in the richness of time and the fullness of meaning. And I think you'll see what I mean. And I'll bet you may agree with me. Yeah, it's really really it's moving, it's moving stuff. Also, the whole Starfire series is what I would call hard science fiction within a very soft science fiction framework. Uh, and I think that's what I like about it because this is the, the sort of thing I like to read as well as to write. And it's, uh, I think it, it gives the hard science fiction a certain framework <clears throat> which uh, keeps us honest. And I, yeah. I think that's uh, one of the great strengths of this series. Probably part of the reason it's lasted as long as it has. It's really, it's a, it's a great uh, culmination of the storyline, and uh, it's a great part of the series. The book is Oblivion by Steve White and Charles E. Gannon. It's now at booksellers everywhere. Steve and Chuck and Tony and Jonathan, uh, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Thanks for hosting us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. 
To this end, Master Trader Sean Yoskalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Customs, the message came across the ship band. We release cameras and inspect. Fools, Dilnem muttered, while Kick, on second, acknowledged the hail. Sent a regular birthday party this time, Kick commented, three on scans. Priscilla looked up from her own screen and strode across the bridge to stand behind the pilots. Three, she asked. It's usually only one. Yes'm. Must be a slow day. Priscilla drew a deep breath, tasting ash and rot. In the screen, the camera pods were released, swarming toward the passage like so many bees. Increase the inner shield, she said sharply. Dilnem threw a startled look over his shoulder, his fingers already moving on the board. Increase in a shield, he said. Yes, Captain. Open a line to the lead cutter, she said. I want to talk to the pilot in charge. Yes, ma'am, said Kick, fingers likewise moving. I'm not getting an ack on their private frequency. Second try, third. Go to public channels, Priscilla said, stomach tight with sudden panic. Kick touched the switch. Dutiful passage, the message came loud across the broad beam. You are advised that this increased shielding is inappropriate and against regulations established by the Langlast Port Authority for orbiting vessels. You are advised that shields must be brought down to low hazard orbital maintenance security level, as per applicable piloting regulation 44. If you do not comply with regulations and allow us to complete our inspection, you will be fined and banned from this port. This is a security and safety operation, orders from shift director. Public channels, Priscilla said. I will answer. Are we logging this? Yes, Captain, said Dilnem. Broad beam open, ma'am, Kick said. This is Priscilla Delacroix e Mendoza, Clan Corval, captain of Dutiful Passage out of Shorebleak. We see an anomaly. Please explain why there are three cutters releasing an increased number of pods than on previous inspections. If a situation has been found that is deemed suspicious, we wish to be notified so that we can work with the customs office to resolve the problem. The customs office has its protocols and its reasons. 
drop the shields to LHOMS level as previously ordered and allow us to continue our inspection. We must establish and ensure that your ship is not a danger to other traffic. Captain, Dilnem said, low-voiced. The drones are proceeding. Priscilla looked to the screen. The drones were indeed proceeding, and there was something about those drones. Ship alert, she said, intuition raising hackles. Crew to general quarters. Dilnem punched the code in, and the two-tone warning echoed through the ship as the captain's voice raced on. Com, compare to log. Are those the same drones we've seen before? Cross-check drone and cutter database. Comparing, no match to log, Kick said. The screen inset flickered with matching images, adjusted for size, for shape, for purpose. Open, a sharp breath. Different cutter, attack pylons. The image flickers stopped, and the inset showed clear IDs. Type match, they're military-grade pods, ma'am, seed bombers. Dilnem snapped his webbing into place and pulled the seat belt snug. Kick did the same as Priscilla stood resolute behind them. Seed bombers explosively released clouds of small, limpet-like bombs, which would then attach to a ship's hull and explode. No one strike was likely to be fatal, but many small strikes could certainly disable even a large trade ship. The explosive launch easily propelled the bombs through a basic meteor shield like the LHOMS and could even overwhelm medium hazard shielding. The cutters continued to close slowly, but the drones accelerated, darting toward the passage. Top shields, Priscilla snapped, just as the closest robot bomber released its deadly cargo. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Tony Weiskopf and Jonathan Graubert for being part of the interview. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the keys to the secret entrance to Big Ben in London that reveals the tower to be an ancient rocket ship. Plus plaudits, thanks, and praise to Steve White and Charles E. Gannon, authors of Oblivion. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 